tonight's speaker meeting and our speaker tonight, uh, she's one of my litter mates and I also consider her one of my soul sisters in this program. She's really awesome and I'm really looking forward to hearing her story. So help me welcome Margaret. Hi guys. <laughs> Little guys. I'm going to open this um, because I'm going to need to drink something and it's going to do that. Yeah. That's the sound That's of success. Yeah. Okay, Markel's got, got a topo. We've got a cookie from Jake. I get to talk about myself for an hour. <laughs> this is my dream. Um, okay, um, experience, strength, and hope. Uh, what it was like, what happened. Something, something. What's the next one? What it's like now. Um, So I tried to kind of focus evenly on those things. um, But I'm just going to kind of dive right in. Um, So I was born in Maryland. I grew up in a tiny little town called Brookville in western Maryland. And we lived out in the middle of nowhere, which was beautiful. But now I like realize that it was uh, a level of control from my father, who was also an alcoholic. When you physically isolate your family, (laughs) you can plan exactly what they need to do. Um, uh, My mom never had friends over, uh, so friendships for me were a really, really hard thing and are kind of a theme throughout this. Uh, Didn't really know it was normal to have like really good old friends, Um, so I didn't see that modeled for me. And my father was physically abusive as well, and so that'll come up a little later. Um, And depending on what day or time you ask me, I either have two brothers or I have one brother, and we're gonna talk a little more about that later. Um, My mom has always been a very consistent part of my life. She was super consistent at that time, very loving. She's still my best friend to this day, you know, even despite all we've gone through as a family. Uh, Things were relatively stable until I was about nine. Uh, Then my dad had a big accident. He fell off a retaining wall, uh, fell about eight feet, shattered his entire uh, left ankle, and I was the one who was with him when it happened. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD much later in life, but um, yeah, it was horrible. And he would have lost his leg had we not lived near Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, he, they rebuilt his leg, big like erector set halo thing with like 38 pins in it. Um, but what that actually led to was like my mom always being gone. Uh, so it had been like super stable, really close family. And she just was, she was gone all the time. We were in like the hands of like different people. Um, She always had to focus on my dad. Everything had to be about my dad. Um, And just lots of hospital visits. And um, what happened right after that, about a year after that is the house we grew up in in Maryland, my parents are builders, all my family are home builders. And they built this really beautiful house and we moved. and I know that might, might not sound like a big deal, but like that was the home, like that was the stability. And we moved while I was away at summer camp. So I left for two weeks and I came back and we were in a different house. And I didn't really get to say goodbye to my friends. I didn't get to say goodbye to the house. And on top of that, my dad was fired from his job. Um, so we moved to Towson, which is just north of Baltimore. And my dad started a real estate company and didn't go anywhere. And I was homeschooled uh, for about six months after having been with, like, anybody went to Catholic school, like, you're with people from, like, infancy, and, like, you know them inside and out, and the classes are really, really small, and so, like, I had no classmates. I was, you know, just with uh, one of my brothers, and, you know, I felt very isolated. You know, we didn't know anybody in that neighborhood. It wasn't like my old neighborhood that, 
you know, a couple of the kids who lived there rode their bikes around. Um, so that was, that was a really sucky time. Like nobody was happy in that house. <laughs> My parents hated the house too, because they're builders. And if you go into, we still talk real estate. I swear I would never talk about real estate. And now the thing I know the most is land development and housing. Um, <laughs> uh, six months after being in Towson, we up and moved again. So I was in, I'd started sixth grade when we moved to Towson homeschooling. And we moved in November to Indianapolis, Indiana, which, no offense to anybody who's from the Midwest, but Indiana fucking sucks. Uh, it is gray. It starts getting gray in, like, October, and it's gray till March. And then there's, like, some sunshine, but you're in fucking Indiana, so there's nothing to do. Um, I use the F word a lot. I'm sorry, it's one of my favorite words. <laughs> um... um yeah, and so we moved, and I got dropped into another small private Catholic school, and Indiana is even more insular than Maryland, so these kids, like, they were, and it's creepy, everyone's related to everybody, too. So, like, not only do they hate you because you're an outsider, but they hate you because you don't know, like, these, you know, family histories. Um, we were super duper poor at that time. We had always, you know, been very, very stable, like upper middle class. We rented a house from a church. Uh, we couldn't afford storage. So the largest room in the house, uh, which was about, I don't know, like a third of the size of this, was stacked floor to ceiling with everything that couldn't be put in the house. I mean, like fucking hoarders jenga in. Um, and my mom was super depressed. Um, it was a really, really unhappy house. Um, we also now were near my dad's family, who my dad does not get along with. So we were, we had to go to family occasions, but my dad like hates all of them. So there was that wonderful tension there too. Um, seventh grade, so everyone hated me in sixth grade, seventh grade, I became popular. I don't know why that happened. I wasn't sure how to handle it. Um, I still didn't know how to like connect and make friendships. And I'm going to talk a lot about mental health in this because it's part of my story. Mm -hmm. uh, later, I was diagnosed with what's called depersonalization disorder, which is an inability to connect with your thoughts and feelings. You kind of see yourself from the outside. Um, and that is kind of what, what the therapist attributed to is just all the, all the instability uh, in my early childhood. Um, guess what? We moved again. Moved from Minneapolis after 20 months of hell, absolute hell in that house. Um, for a lot of different reasons. We moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale, technically. Um, lost all my friends that I had just made in my school. Uh, this was pre-kind of internet-y days, so, like, see ya, bye. Um, got dropped into a hyper-competitive all-girls private school. Um, still didn't know how to make friends. And this is when things kind of just start to, to pick up in terms of the mental health. Um, started in with a depression um, my sophomore year, suicidal ideation. Um, I was really, really, a really observant Catholic at that point, and I didn't know what to do because all I could think was, like, throwing myself off a bridge or, like, cutting my wrist, and I didn't, like, I didn't know what to do with it. So um, I went to confession like a good Catholic does, and the priest told me that I should pray to St. Michael to protect me from my thoughts. <laughs> that was the end of me in the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, a little after that, I had um, a psychotic break, which is, uh, it's, it's a nervous breakdown, but that's like the PC term for it. Um, it was about three weeks before junior prom, and I was diagnosed with uh, MDD, multi um, MDD, 
Depression disorder. Uh, major, de- major depressive disorder. Thank you. I knew somebody here would know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, just kind of some overall notes that color my life. Um, I was very, very sheltered and not in like a loving way and like a very highly controlled way. Um, my mother always had dreamed I was going to die in a car accident, so I was not allowed to drive until I was 17, like that kind of stuff. Um, also, like my relationships with men are, have always been kind of out of whack, and I think that has to do with kind of how my mother like never never let me around boys, never had boys in the house. Um, I was not allowed to ask, ask allowed to ask boys on dates. I could not go on dates. Um, like there were several freak out moments that she had with me around boys. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna stay away from them, or she's gonna fucking freak her shit out. Um, and I also had one of my brothers, um, Mitch, he was a wrestling captain. He would also beat up any guys who talked about me because he went to the all-boys school across the street. So, like, maybe somebody did like me, and I had no idea because he would kick the shit out of them, apparently, which I found out later. Um, my dad. Uh, my dad is, I believe, he's a dry alcoholic now. I truly don't know. Um, but his temper was extremely unpredictable. Um, he had a belt. Um, when we were growing up, it was like a super worn-in leather belt uh, with a buckle, and that's what he used on us. And when he would, it was when he would wear it, like it was, it was terrifying, you know. Um, that belt has been burned now. I should tell you that. So progress. Um, the last time he really beat me was when I was ten. Um, that there's it picks up again later. Um, but I had no idea like what would set him off. Um, he would like rage at the, at the smallest things. I remember one time him just going off on me because we had like a little coffee, like espresso maker thing. And I made myself like a mocha and he's like, Oh, you should make me one. I'm like, get your own. And he just fucking lost it. Like just, uh, it was, scary and insane and I had no I like I didn't know where the line kept moving you know um my mom still would not have friends or people over and again now I know that's because you can't have people around my father you can't um so it was a it was we lived in this you know beautiful house in Arizona but there was no one in it you know it was like a perfect house to like have friends over and throw parties and um yeah it was just us um so to to not have the shit hit the fan, um, and my brothers continued to get it from my dad. He didn't touch me after I was 10 uh, for a very long time, but he, like, cold-cocked my brother in the kitchen one time uh, when we were about 14 or 15. You just you just had to not do... You had to be as perfect as possible, like, figure it out as quickly <coughs> as possible, because there was just no, no way of knowing. Um... Moving on to the college years. So I got a full scholarship. I went to Arizona State University. Go Devils. Um, I had never been to a public school ever, and I had never been to a co-ed school since puberty. (laughs) So I had no idea how to relate to any of these kids. I had no idea what I was doing. I had zero life experience. I was a babe in the woods. Um, I did, I made a couple new friends um, because I wasn't in my parents' house. So, like, I didn't have to, like, route everything through them. So that was kind of nice. Um, but this was also the onset of, um, of bipolar. So I'd been diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder, but without, like, access to the stuff 
that you can act out with bipolar, it's very hard to diagnose. Um, so I had access to money and to boys and to alcohol. And those are all things that are super fun when you're manic. You know? um, and untreated bipolar is actually progressive. So while it might start looking like depression when you first start out, as it goes on and if it's not treated properly, your cycles get closer together, they get higher and higher and lower and lower. Um, I joined a sorority. Um, which I would like to say is one of the best decisions I made in college. Um, I have a ton of girlfriends. Uh, all of them are super duper supportive of my recovery. We did a girls trip three months into my sobriety and I told three of them and dude, they had my back. Like I would dip out and go to meetings. They would like run coverage. Like they make sure nobody thought I was pregnant cause I wasn't drinking. Like they like covered my ass so hard. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in a group of girls and you all have known each other for, you know, 15 years. And like, you want a beer? I'm like, no. And I was like, are you pregnant? Like, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but I was going to transfer out at the end of uh, my freshman year at ASU, but I was like, well, I'm going to try, try one more thing to try to make the campus a little smaller. It's a 60,000-person campus, and it's also a ton of commuters, so it can be kind of hard to find your place. Um, and I wasn't a partier at that point. Like, I wasn't, like, a big drinker, and, like, that's how you found your place. Um, so, like, that was my first real, like, like, they taught me how to girl, like, I didn't, I wore, like, Adidas, like, snap-away pants and, like, t-shirts, and at all girls' schools by your senior year, you don't, you don't give a fuck about how you look, you don't shave your legs, you wear your skirts super long, like, no one cares, because there's no boys around, and so that was, like, what I came into college doing, <laughs> which apparently was not acceptable, um, so yeah, I did the fake eyelashes and teased my hair and wore, wore heels five days a week, um, which is a whole nother thing. <laughs> um, but the cool thing about alcohol is when you don't know how to relate to people and you drink with them, you all relate and you relate super duper well. And it's easy to talk and easy to flirt and easy to do all the things that were always very, very hard for me because I had so much anxiety around them. Um, and I could also really hold my liquor like really, really well. Um, I could, you know, drink guys under the table. Um, you know, I could do a million rounds of, you know, whatever drinking game. I could do like four or five shots in a row and then like top that off with something else and be totally fine. Um, didn't really get bad hangovers at that point. Um, I also used to come to parties like around 11 o'clock. I used to like roll in with like a 30 rack and a couple handles because by then at a college party, all the booze is gone. And so if you come in with the booze and you save the party, guess who's popular now? Um, yeah, so that was, that's kind of where my college experience was, um, leading up to one of probably the most uh, formative event of my adult life, which was Christmas Eve of 2004. So we're going to get a little bit back into my brothers. So um, I, have, I have two brothers. Um, one of them is Matt. He is my oldest brother. He is uh, 16 months older than me. I was a surprise Irish twin. Very loved, very uh, unexpected. Also a girl. There's no girls in my family, so my precious little pearl. Um, and then we have my other brother, who is four months older than me. His name is Mitch. Uh, Mitch was adopted when I was eight months old, and he was a year old, and Matt was 16... Whatever. Whatever those age ranges are. Um, 
so like the fact that like we all like had our limbs by the time we were 18 like that's a success for my mother like that's a win you know she had like two two-year-olds and a three-year-old two three-year-olds and a four. like we were like we and it was the dynamics were horrible it was a horrible situation and she like we were all alive um so the issue with Mitch is Mitch has uh, what's called reactive attachment syndrome. And if you're familiar with reactive attachment syndrome, uh, it, it essentially means you're, um, it basically, so if you're, he was in an orphanage in Cali, Columbia for the first uh, eight months of his life. And when you're a baby and you cry, you're comforted. And when you wet yourself, you're changed. When you're hungry, you're fed. And so all the neural pathways in your brain get reinforced that you're going to be taken care of. If those brains, it's called myelination, um, if those um, pathways don't get reinforced, you are set for self-interest, survival, you above everything else. It is extremely difficult to undo. When I have friends who are considering adoption and they're not adopting a newborn, I always tell them about this. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but if you catch it early, it is very treatable. If you do not, it leads to uh, the person becoming a psychopath. And just so we're all clear on the definition, because um, I wanted to be very clear on this, uh, psychopathy is characterized by continuing antisocial behavior, impulsivity, selfishness, callousness, and remorselessness. Um, so, and that showed up from, you know, from my mother will tell you, like from before he could talk. Um, so he was extremely volatile growing up, um, and that was a problem because if one of us did something bad, all of us were punished, like we were a set. Um, he always, uh, he set Matt and I against each other a lot, like it would either be me and him versus Matt or Matt and him versus me, um, and that took me a long time to see that he was the, the center of that. Um, there was also um, a lot of very uncomfortable, still very uncomfortable to talk about, uh, issues with sexualization. Um, it's very... I fucking hate the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, because, and that's... we. My brother Mitch and I went into that movie and about like 30 minutes in, we figured out the plot line was Luke, Luke whatever's face is Luke Wilson's character is in love with his adopted sister in the film, Gwyneth Paltrow. And I wanted to throw up. Um, it's... I don't. I can't really describe it, but like, there's a lot of like, un, just very unhealthy, like, gross feeling things that um, I didn't know how. Like, you know, I I still you know have trouble you know relating to men in a healthy way because of this weird, awful, you know, stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so spring break of two thousand four. I was a freshman in college. He was still a senior in high school, and my brother was a senior in a senior, a sophomore in college. Matt was, and he uh, he ran away from home. And when I say he ran away from home, he waited until my dad had taken me and my other brother, one of my friends, um, up to Purgatory to ski, and uh, he had been stashing away money, so he took money and he like just like eviscerated my mother and like broke her heart and like she begged him to stay called her a liar like called her all these different things and um and he left and um you know he went to live with his girlfriend's parents and proceeded a campaign of just like 
total character assassination on my family. Um, you know, telling some things that were true. My father is an abusive son of a bitch, but basically saying like my mother was like the worst person in the world and like treated him differently and you know all these things. Um, not even sure because like that doesn't even th- sound that serious, but it was it just it was it was horrible. Um, the stakes got raised though because he started making death threats against me and my mother um, consistently um, recorded and uh, he reached out to my dad's entire family and to, you know told told uh, my father's oldest brother who he does not like has never liked um, you know all these you know woe stuff you know like I can't even it's very convoluted. Um, but yeah, that filtered out through the whole, you know, gossipy Midwestern Catholic family. And like people thought my mother was this horrible, horrible person. And so like now I had this divide. It's like, so I have a family who hates my mother and they, you know, they don't get along with my father. So like I lost like this entire group of people, you know, like I didn't know how to defend I didn't, I didn't know how to defend our family because parts of it were true, but you don't talk about that stuff. And then, you know, there's other, what I'm about to talk about, you know, stuff had happened and it just, I just was like, okay, nothing, you know, not going to talk to anybody. Um, just not going to do it. Um, So he did not graduate college. He did not get his GED, um, but the Army took him without a GED and also with this mental health diagnosis. So, again, no offense to anybody in the armed forces, but that's not, like, you don't teach somebody like that how to kill people. Like, (laughs) you just don't. Um, My dad was staying in touch with him for some reason. I don't know why, whether it's, like, some, like, you know, weird dynamic, like some kind of savior complex. I don't know. Um, But he knew that at the time that Mitch was in Afghanistan. Um, Again, this is Christmas Eve of 2004. And we were cleaning up. We had just had dinner. It was like an okay Christmas Eve dinner. There was some tension. And at the end of the meal, I think that he had been drinking. I don't know. Um, But based on the glass, we had like these crystal tumblers. I think that he was drinking because he was drinking out of one of those. Um, and he said, uh, he said something about him being in Afghanistan. And I said something along the lines of like, just cause he's in a war, like doesn't make him a hero. And my dad, he lost it. He turned around, he grabbed my wrist. He slammed me into a cabinet. He kept slamming me into a cabinet, just like screaming at me, um, you know, that I wasn't supposed to talk about him that way. And, um, I don't remember all the details of that night. I do remember that, um, my mom dragged him off of me and I was going to like, I was, I was enraged. I was going to fight him. Like I was going to kill him. Um, and my brother like shoved me into my room. Um, you know, and that night I learned like that my mom had, she had no idea about the physical abuse that was going on, which like, because I had just assumed she knew. Like, I assumed it was, like, tacit approval. Um, she had no idea. Um, but things that, you know, I really, you know, resent to this day and I'm currently working on, she did not call the cops, you know, super beat up. Um, and she didn't leave him. 
And she had always told me when I was younger, like, if a man raises a hand to you, 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 you leave him and you don't look back. And here she was, you know, her children, you know, he'd never raised a hand to her. Not that I know of. Maybe he did. Who knows? Um, and she stayed with him. And it's like, what the fuck does that say about me? Like, how you value me? Um, the worst part of it, I mean, that's pretty bad, but we woke up on Christmas Day and, like, acted normal. Um, like, we exchanged presents. My dad made breakfast, you know? It was like it never happened. My mom took me shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue. <laughs> um, and bought me a ton of shit and continued to give me money for years and years after that because she couldn't fix what was wrong. Um, after going back to school, can I get my toe, please? I'm getting all parched. Go um, ahead. Um, after going back to school, I didn't speak with my father for two years. Um, but. I had my parties. Um, drinking, the drinking got worse from there. Uh, but it was all, you know, it was all in good fun. It was all binge drinking. It was fraternity parties. But, you know, I became a serious drinker. Um, and, you know, all the stuff with Mitch still continued, the death threats. He finally started extorting money from my parents because it's like we give him money or he finds where we live and kills us all, you know, which I, like, I say that very lightly, but that is something that is always in... You know, I'm not on any uh, public searchable database for a reason. Um, you know, my parents have a P.O. box for a reason. If you go home, there's bats and guns around the house. They used to bungee tie the doors to the front door closed um, because we just didn't know where he was for a while. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of layers to that. But basically, um, the stuff with my brother it broke a big part of me because when you have to, when people ask you how many siblings you have, usually that's a very clear-cut question. And I don't know how to answer that question anymore. I still don't. Because um, if I say I have two brothers, you know, it's like, what do they do? Who are they? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. So I say I have one brother. Um, but it's weird when you have to, you know... You have to revise, like, the deepest part of yourself, you know? Um, yeah. Fucking sucked. So if you want a ground zero, that's probably it. <laughs> okay. Um, graduation in Los Angeles. Um, so when I graduated, there were no jobs. I graduated in 2007. But what that did was give me a lot of freedom to do whatever the hell I wanted, and I wanted to work in the movies. Um, so I went and became an unpaid PA on a bunch of little, little shows in Arizona and I got a break and that led to something else. And finally I worked with a director who said, you got to get the fuck out of Phoenix. There's nothing for you here. Go to LA. I did. I hustled really, really hard. Um, I got a job as an assistant, um, to an actor, producer and his wife, um, my job life has been super weird too and has fed into a lot of my, um, my need for approval behaviors and need for perfection. Um, the, the husband was great, still close with him to this day. His wife is ex was extremely emotionally abusive, like psychotic, manipulative woman. And I didn't really drink during that time because it was the same thing as being at home. There was no room for error. You know, it's not that I would get fired, it's that I would get, like, emotionally berated and, like, asked if I was a good person, you know, which is a very weird work dynamic. 
Um, that's that, that like super low margin for error actually kept my drinking pretty controlled until um, September 2014. Um, I had a, my third job. I actually I was there for about eight months and I had another breakdown. Um, and my mom had to come to L.A. And, and take care of me. But I still got that same MDD diagnosis. So we still have that super fun bipolar that's still undiagnosed at 26. Um, then I got my super big break. Um, so one of my mentors um, had my breakdown, left the job. Um, and then something came up. You know, I was very, very good at my job. So, you know, opportunities did pop up. Um, so I got a job uh, at a major network, and they paid me a full producer rate, which was an absurd amount of money. I asked for it, and I was like, there's no way they're going to give this to me. They totally did. Um, it was just insane for a 27-year-old. Uh, it was for 14 weeks of work. Very high-stress job, live television. There's nothing like it. It is a fucking, like, not having ever, you know, alcohol is my drug of choice. But if I had to say what a drug felt like, this is what a drug felt like. It's like you're super intense, super high. Like, it's amazing. Um, and so I would drink most nights to take the edge off. I would be that. I'm like, this is what adults do. They have a glass of wine and they relax. Um, but I was hanging out with a lot of people who liked the finer things. So I discovered port and I discovered champagne and I discovered really nice <laughs> wine. And I also discovered credit cards, <laughs> uh, which again, if you're bipolar, credit cards are not a good thing, especially if you're living in Los Angeles and trying to keep up with the Joneses. Um, that's really the last time I'm going to talk about that, but just like just to give people perspective, when I got sober this time, I had $52,000 in consumer credit card debt, uh, which I'm very happy to say, yeah, <laughs> and I got nothing to show for it. <laughs> don't got a car, don't got nothing, you know, <laughs> uh, but I'm very happy to say I've got about 20000 of that paid down, so it's it's doable. It's very doable. Um have ego written here six times. So yeah, a lot of ego stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, I was, I was pretty damn high functioning at that point though. So I got another job out of it and like the drinking, like when, cause it's like, I've made it, I've made it. This is the spot I've made it. I don't need to be so careful anymore. Um, and I got another job out of that with another high pay rate and, and benefits this time I had insurance. So everything was like validating. It's like, you're doing this, you're, you're doing good. Um, I moved to Venice Beach, um, and I'd always lived with a roommate, but for me, like, because I knew, like, I had gone to church with these girls, so, like, that kind of shame will, like, keep you from, like, drinking too much, like, every single night, and I hadn't figured out that you could, like, hide booze in your room at that point. I know that sounds silly, but, but I hadn't. Um, and so I decided to move into a small studio in Venice and I started to work remotely at this job. So I am by myself in a small room. The room is both my bedroom, kitchen, living room and bathroom. And I don't work with any people, you know, it's all, you know, commuting. So what that's really productive for is day drinking, especially in beautiful Venice Beach. Um, about this time, I, um, I've had, I had relationships before, not a lot, um, but this relationship, this guy, like, pursued me for months, like, he made me feel very special, I was with somebody else at the time, uh, but we had broken up, and he asked me on a date, and of course I slept with him on the first date, and we went on a hike the next morning, it was very L.A., and after that, he wrote me this huge email about, because we had had, like, you know, the, you know, the 
talk till sunrise talks where you just like talk about everything in your life and you're like here's all my deepest darkest secrets and he wrote me an email about how he couldn't be with me um, because of my shitty mental health genes like he was like I've got he's like I've got depression in my family like you I just he's like I'm looking for someone to you know who could potentially like be my baby mama he used those words this is a white guy um, that should have been a red flag um, and that just I felt I was just like you just need to be around me more <laughs> you'll change your mind so that's what I did um yeah so uh we dated for like four or five months and we had a soft breakup but of course we kept sleeping together because that's the healthy relationship dynamic I like to have um and uh I knew I was gonna see him at a party the same party we had met at two years before and so I decided to cut off all my hair and be like, hi, I don't need you. You know, I love my hair. I cut it all off. Um, if I ever cut my hair super short, it's a cry for help. Don't let me tell you different. Um, that's just for me. Short hair is awesome, but not for me. Um, yeah. And so I saw him with this girl. This is just too funny. Um, he had mentioned, like, a Reiki healer he was working with. This is the most fucking L.A. story ever. He had mentioned a Reiki healer that he had been, like, working with probably about two weeks before, like, um, we kind of cut it off. And guess who shows up to with him at the party? It's this fucking Reiki healer. I'm like, you jackass. So he was cheating on me with the Reiki healer. It was amazing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, after that party, I spent the entire weekend drunk at my friend Bethany's house, who um, I would also like to say has been amazingly supportive of my recovery. She's seen, she's seen me at my, my bottom. Um, at this point, I wasn't keeping it together well. Uh, my first bottom was, we're, this is where we're going down. Um, it was in February 2016. Um, I had been planning on going to an Oscar, you know, I was getting worse and worse and worse, but this was the night that did it. Uh, I'd been planning on going to an Oscar party, and um, I bought, like, at a friend's house, like, not, like, a real thing. Um, and, like, watch the TV and, like, predict the things. Um, so I bought a few bottles of champagne. And I was starting drinking, like, pretending to get ready. And all I really wanted to do was, like, sit and drink on my own. So I'm like, oh, I'm too tipsy. Like, I can't go. Finished all the champagne, four bottles of it. And then something cool that happened in L.A. was that you could order alcohol. And they would bring it to you. Um, so I ordered more wine. So I had five bottles at that point. Uh, I blacked out. I threw up on myself, like, in my home by myself. Uh, I woke up the next morning, and there was, like, a cutting board and a knife out. So I had been trying to do something with a knife while I was blacked out. Um, and so I stopped drinking for a couple weeks, and I decided to go to an AA meeting because I'm like, this is something that runs in my family. Got lots of alcoholics on my dad's side. Um, all the mental health is from my mom's side. It's a really cool gene pool. Um told my mom, you know, that, you know, I think there's a problem. She was, she was proud of me. Um, I wasn't really a big fan of AA. Um, I did not identify as an alcoholic. I didn't feel comfortable saying, hi, Margaret, I'm an alcoholic. Um, it was like everyone spoke a totally different language. I felt completely lost. Um, felt like everything was coded. Um, so also this weird girl like glommed on to me in my first meeting and like would not like just let me be. And so I was like, well, I guess I can't go to that anymore. Um, <laughs> um, so I decided to keep going like without A because like drinking was the problem. I had stopped drinking. Therefore, there is no problem. Um, 
So I was fired from my super awesome job and they told me it was because of cutbacks. But looking back, I was a really shitty employee at that point because I was drinking all the time. Um, I decided that LA was the problem and I was going to move to Austin. My mom's side's from Texas. I had discovered Austin when I was about 27. Texas was green. Uh, West Texas is not, and that's all I knew. <laughs> and so I was like, hell yeah, I'll go to Texas. Um, so I drove from LA to Austin, which was an amazing road trip, got a little apartment, started working for Instacart just to get some money while I looked for a job. And I was so happy and so content, like that feeling that you get when you like you make that quick fix decision, where it's like, I'm so angry at my job, I'm just going to fucking quit my job. And you feel great for like, like a week. <laughs> and then you're like, I just quit my job, but I do. Um, and yeah, I was feeling good. And I was out on a patio. I've told, I've told some people this about my relapse. So I was out on the patio at Shady Grove <coughs> with some friends. And it was a hot August day. And it was just beautiful. I was happy. I'd been sober for about eight months. I was doing good. And I was like, I'll have a margarita. So I had a margarita. And yeah, it was, it was okay for a while. It was okay for a little bit. And I decided to get another... Um, high-stress job with, like, a really insane boss, and it was a totally, like, unstable work situation. Like, I had to write paychecks, and, like, the paychecks would bounce, and then I would have to... It was, it was a whole... It was very, very unhealthy. I won't get into it, but, um, yeah, it was not... It was not good. Um, but it had a really good title, and I got to work with a lot of cool people, but everything else was fucked up. Um, don't take jobs for your egos, friend. What do you say? <laughs> So I started drinking more and more to take the edge off. Uh, lots of parties, lots of events, lots of free booze. Um, there was beer and liquor at the office. Uh, so, yeah. So that started a, a slow descent. Um, something else happened in 2017, which is that my best friend was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. And Emily and I have known each other since we were 14. She is, like, the one friend that I've held on to, like, through all this time, through all this moving and everything. And uh, we're the same age, and she's the mother of my godson. Felix was two, was, mm -mm, he wasn't even two when she was diagnosed. Um, yeah, he was one when she was diagnosed. Um, so I left the office and I drank, and I used that as an excuse to, to drink more. Um, which I, you know, I used a lot, like, if somebody, like, if somebody's friend's uncle died, I'd be like, oh, I'm so sad, you know? <laughs> Anything was an excuse to drink, but that one hit me really hard, because I was like, this is really fucked up and unfair. Um, at this point, like, a bottle of wine was nothing, and I had started in on vodka. Uh, so vodka became my friend at that point. Um, this time around, physical symptoms, night sweats, shooting pains, I developed a stutter, um, I could not remember anything, had no impulse control, I had no patience, my skin got really bad, like, um, the stutter was, I, I was like, maybe I just have a stutter now, and no, it's because you're drinking too much. Um, I could, I couldn't go one day without a drink, I physically could not do it, um, I would get withdrawal symptoms, and I started drinking earlier and earlier, um, when it started getting really bad, I bought, and I still carry this vodka label to this day. It's the last bottle of vodka I bought. Um, I started, I bought it at a, like 11 o'clock in the morning and I finished it by five. In that bottle, I was like, oh, it'll last me like two or three days. You know, like people, normal people at the grocery store who like buy a bottle of vodka and it sits in the, you know, the cabinet for like a month, you know? <laughs> so I never liked to keep stashes at my house because I would drink till it was gone. 
you know. So if I needed something, I'd had to go out and get it, you know, because that, that was a there was a control mechanism. Um, I crashed my car into the side of a car wash, you know. The wall was not moving. I just, like, $5,000 worth of damage in front of people. It was really not good. Um, I started driving to go out and get booze after about two or three drinks. You know, I kept pushing the rules back because it was like, okay, if I've had two drinks, I don't drive. Okay, it's three drinks, you know. Um, that's, a, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to stash because I just, I would drink it all. Um, so my, the last day I had a drink was March 18th, 2018. I had decided to buy a bunch of picture frames from Goodwill. I was on a super manic high and I was like, I'm going to redecorate my whole house. So I went out and bought a ton of picture frames and I was like, I'm going to paint them all and I'm going to put up on my walls and it's going to be hunky dory. Um, I had half a pack of White Claw hard seltzer, uh, and I finished that by about one o'clock and then I went out to get some more. And so it's like 10 hard seltzers. Like, I don't know what that is. It's like 10 beers. Um, it was four in the afternoon and afternoon. I was just absolutely tanked like on a Sunday afternoon in March for no damn reason. And it was a beautiful day outside. I lived in a place at that point that you could look, you could see Ladybird Lake and could see people walking their dogs. And I was just like, I'm going to fucking die. You know, like this is what my life is right now. This is what my life is going to be. And I knew I couldn't do it anymore, you know? I was gonna die. That's what I was gonna, I was gonna be alone, I was gonna drink, and I was gonna die. Um, so I finished everything else I had in my apartment and I fell asleep around midnight. And I went to an 8 a.m. meeting at Western Trails. And God bless them because I went to that meeting and I said, my name is Margaret, I'm an alcoholic, it's been eight hours since my last drink. And they all just, <laughs> fuck you guys, <laughs> you know? And now when something like that happens to me, I'm like, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> you know, you need to be here. Uh, I, felt, I felt like I fit in this time because I knew I, was, I knew I was an alcoholic. So that was the gift that my relapse gave me is I'm, I am very certain I am an alcoholic. I'm someone who can't be told. Like, you can't tell me. Like, I got to find it out for myself. Um, I, had, uh, I had a sponsor um, for the first, like, month and a half. Um, it didn't turn out to be a good fit. Uh, it was very, she started talking to me about problems in her marriage. I'm like, dude, I got trauma around that. Like, you can't be, can't be doing that. Um, and so, but things that she did that I do really recommend is she did get me started on uh, a 90, and I wrote 30 and 30. It's a 90 and 90, <laughs> um, which I really do recommend for any newcomer. Like, that was life-changing for me. Uh, I just started working with a new sponsor and I'm doing it again. Um, and she also had me start reading the first uh, 100, 164 pages, 164 pages, yeah, <laughs> had me read that very quickly. Um, so she, she like pushed me in. She was like that, you know, you're, you're going to go this time, um, which I really am thankful to her for. Recovery. I quit my job. Um, it was very, very volatile, volatile. And it was also, you know, I worked in entertainment for... <coughs> you know, 10 years. And if you want like your ego stoked, like go work in entertainment, you'll find somebody who can do it and you'll feel they'll pump you up and then they'll pay you and you'll pump someone else up and got a two, dog two weeks after I got sober. A lot of you know her, her name is Zola and she is the light of my life. Um, and we just like convalesced together cause she was super sick when, when I got her and 
you know, I was super sick, so we were watched watched Nurse Jackie, <laughs> which I don't know if that's the best show to like binge when you're like just starting to get sober, but that's what we did. Um, after 30 days, I told my mom I didn't want to tell her before because I didn't know if it was going to stick um, or how long it would stick. And she had, she had been super upset uh, when she found out I was drinking again. We had been talking about my cousin Anna. Uh, Anna is uh, 54, 56. Um, Anna, Anna got a liver transplant two years ago because she was such an alcoholic. Um, so early 50s, liver transplant. Um, there's a lot of other stories, um, but basically she did not get sober for herself. She got sober to get a liver transplant, and she is drinking again. So she stole a liver from somebody. And my mom was just like, you know, she was, I was like, she, she can't get sober for anyone else. She's got to get sober for herself. My mom's like, well, you did it. And I was like, ah. I just hid it from her because I was so ashamed. Um, I did nothing but AA for the first two months. I was very, very blessed. Not everybody has the opportunity to do this. Um, my parents paid my rent and my bills because I was, I was like barely a person. I was barely functioning. Um, like all I could do was essentially like go to AA and like eat and lay on my couch. Um, like, um, when I was just coming, like, toward the very end and just coming out of it, like, I didn't want to shower or, like, have good hygiene because the water hurt my skin. Like, I could, I could not shower. Um, and so, like, yes, that's good, but that's a reality. Like, you know, not everybody talks about that, but that was a reality for me. Um, the stutter stopped first, and then, like, the... I'm sure, like, those zapping pains that, like, kind of wake you up, like, those finally stopped. It took much longer um, for my memory and my impulse control to come back, and I started working with um, a psychiatrist who specializes in recovery. Um, he, I had had, like, a soft bipolar 2 diagnosis a few years before, but we reaffirmed that diagnosis. I'm on correct medication now. It's wonderful because the medication actually works uh, when you're not drinking, something that, you know, I didn't totally believe in. I was like, oh, it'll work fine. No, it doesn't. Um, amazing things in recovery. Friendships. Friendships in big capital letters. Um, I didn't know how to make friends uh, and keep friends when I was drinking. I certainly didn't know how to make friends when I was sober. Literally all I did, because I was like, how am I going to make friends? I sat at that picnic table out there, at that smoking table, and I just sat there, and I smoked until people talked to me. <laughs> and we kept talking, because people were like, how do you make friends? That's, how, that's literally how I made friends. We have the social skills of kindergartners. <laughs> all that time, that's how I made friends with you, and you, and you. <laughs> and that one over there. Um, but no, we do. We, we are socially stunted because, like, the way we interact with people is, like, when we're high or drunk. You know, how do all these, like, normal things that people learn, we just didn't learn. So, like, that's literally how I did it. Um, but I will say the friendships that you, you make in and around this program, because we practice rigorous honesty and vulnerability, like, they're going to be the best friendships that you ever make. Um, you know, like, like Julie said, my girls are, like, my, my group of girlfriends are, like, the most precious thing. Um, because we have each other's back and we're always honest with each other. Um, I know that they're not going to lie to me or pump me up when I don't need to be. And they'll help, you know, they'll take me down a peg when I need to be. And they'll just, they just love, you know, we just love each other. Um, we just give each other love, you know, regardless. Um, 
I would say don't be discouraged. If you don't connect with people in your first few months, again, your brain is like rebooting. My brain was doing a hard reboot. I was like 43% human. It was awful. Um, no, it was, aw- it was awful. Um, kind of some, some last kind of thoughts as we close out. Um, I actually just recently, like my journey is I had a sponsor, it didn't work out, sponsor didn't work out, and then I did not work the steps. I only recently started working the steps. I started working the steps right before my one year. Um, and again, I'm a person, I, I can't be told, I was not ready to work the steps. So for a lot of people, there's a lot of value in like working the steps right away and like knocking it out. I've heard that people have had amazing experiences with that. For me, like this is the right time to do it. So like your journey is your journey, like how you got here. We all, you know, we all come from different places. So don't let anyone like try to like shove you into a box of like this is what AA is because it's not. No one knows what the fuck AA is. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. She also introduced me to the term future tripping, which is like my favorite thing to say now. Don't future trip, you know, because <laughs> that's what I do. Um, let's see. Just kind of last, very last things that I wish people had, you know, kind of told me when I was coming in, um, you know. Don't be hard on yourself about how you got here or what you did in your past. Like, just be here now. Um, be patient and pause when agitated. I know that's, like, so, like, like slammed into us. But, man, like, just take a beat. When you're pissed off, like, just take a beat. It has saved me so many times. Always take a 12-step call. And don't be afraid to make a call to somebody. Like, no matter when anybody calls me. I looked at the phone the other day. Someone was calling me, and I was just like picked up the phone it was great it was great for her it was great for me like never don't take a 12-step call and never feel like you can't call somebody like it is going to be awkward as hell just pick up the phone the person on the other end of the line knows it's going to be awkward at first but you're they know we know but it's going to be you're going to feel so much better um service kept me sober in early sobriety got me out of myself um Look for your part in everything. Like even when you're like even when it seems like you're writing bullshit. Like mm-hmm. I wrote something. I was like, I had a bad interaction with my boss. Da 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 da. And it's like, what I should have done. You know, I should have listened to her side and kept my mouth shut. You know, maybe I'm not gonna. But like that's literally what I should have done. And the fact that I know that that's what I should have done. Well, that's progress. Um, be open about your sobriety if you can. That's a personal choice for me. Um, like. I have it on my freaking Instagram. Like, there's no shame in my sobriety game. Um, I've had a couple people reach out to me telling me that they reevaluated their drinking or stopped drinking because I was so open about it. And, like, that's that's all I want. Um, I don't want to, like, sit on a mountain and be like, sobriety is the best. But I don't want people who want to be sober to be afraid to be sober. Um, and last thing I... <laughs> This is so hokey. Okay, be okay in the gray. Hmm, why did I write this? Let's see. Oh, that's why. Okay, um, uh, the only hard and fast rule in AA is no drinking. Um, you know, be okay with not knowing, with taking suggestions, with trying things out, and don't try to, you know, fill your time um, or, you know, dead air with things that don't mean anything to you. You know, be okay with, like, exploring that space. Um, just don't drink and figure everything else will be figured out and you've got a lot of good people around you to help you figure it out so it's my time folks hey,